When it comes to hard work, there's one important rule. Pick the right tool for the right job. That's why Chevy offers a family of Silverado pickup trucks designed just for the job. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I met at our first radio jobs and have been friends ever since. And we had fun in our 20s as wingwomen for each other. And in our 30s, we got married. Then we had babies within weeks of each other. Eventually landing the hardest job we've ever had, parenthood. Our kids are 12 and 10, but we'll talk about everything from babyhood to menopause. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and bring some knowledge to other average parents. We make it look easy. We make it look good. Yeah, we're average, not experts. So we'll talk about the topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I'm sure to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after the first season, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. Apparently, parents need an education on how to advocate for their kids so they can get the most out of their public education experience. Okay. Uh, I know I know you know I'm a geek. And I really, I really am into school and education topics. And I know pretty sure that I read more, uh, in my jammies and my bed at night about education topics and policies than most people. But I find it very fascinating. Like most people are like getting down with their Harlequin romances. You're snuggling (laughs) up with. (laughs) I'm snuggling up to like education blogs and stuff. It gives me that warm and fuzzy. I'm a nerd. Um, so. I read a lot of journals and I, I try to stay engaged in my kids' school district. So in all the mom circles I'm in and journal reading, one thing I have come to realize is that special education and getting the services for your kid um, in public schools is just one giant headache. Okay, let's take a step back here because um, when we were growing up, special education was extreme developmental delays or physical disabilities what what qualifies now i mean why, why so many more people yeah when you think of special education you don't but it's actually much much broader and bigger and common than you think um special education students can suffer from things like adhd oh, sure. which hello we know all about that um auditory processing disorder uh, anxiety or dyslexia, those are things that would qualify and fall under the umbrella of special education. It refers to a wide range of services that can be provided in different ways and in different settings to students. So, you know, if you have somebody that has ADHD and can't or has anxiety over tests, that, that, that type of thing, that falls under that umbrella. So I've heard the word mainstreamed. Is, is that what we're trying to do? We're trying to get kids with the various needs to be within the classrooms with kids who don't have the special education needs and have them all learn together? I think so. That's why we're going to have our guests. Okay, okay. But yeah, I mean, th- there's kids that have IEPs. Have you heard of IEP? 
uh, individual education plan. Yeah, 504 plans. I don't know about that. We're going to have to ask. Yes. So there's a federal law that exists to protect kids with disabilities. It's called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act of 2004. It's IDEA. So you see the acronym IDEA. Sure. States that children with disabilities have the same right and access to free and appropriate public education as any other kid. And I was reading somewhere when I was like trying to figure that out. um, It was a great analogy that access is an important term in education and that making curriculum accessible to students with disabilities is a lot like making buildings accessible for people in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if there's a barrier to your kids learning, um, such as difficulty reading or dyslexia or whatever, the school needs to come up with the equivalent of a wheelchair ramp for you to help your child access the reading material. Is that on the school's dime? Because um, you know we started out in Catholic education. And I know Sophie, when she was in kindergarten, she had a, a kid in her class who had his own aid because he needed extra, extra help, but the family paid for it. What? Yeah, because the Catholic schools were, were not oh, equipped. Oh, because, yeah, well, that's what, so in, I'm in a public school. There are children that are students that are in the private school, local Catholic school that come for services. I've seen them because they come. So you go to your home school is, is how I understand it. And, but then therefore the, the parents don't pay. It is, it's paid for by the, the education program. That's the school, the public school. Okay. Is, yes. So, um, we always like to bring in experts when we talk about this. And so clearly this falls outside my wheelhouse, even though I like to say that I know what I'm talking about from reading all these blogs and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) My nerdy journals. I just don't, I don't, I don't have a child with an IEP or a 504 plan. So, um, but I know in my mom's circles that this is a very, real thing and very common thing to to have to take care of. Yeah, and I uh, in my mom circles too, I have a friend whose uh son was dyslexic uh for years and um she had to go through a bunch Hoops. of hurdles. Yep. And then another son, another friend who has a son um it took some special testing whether he was finally diagnosed uh and I think he he had auditory issues, but you're not going to get help if you don't push for it. Ask. You know that's the thing is that as a parent, you know your child best. And right. you, so I think that's where like the problem is. And, you know, you read a bunch of headlines. Granted, it's not an education journal, but like in the paper, you'll read about how budgets are tight in, in education and public schools. So, you know, sometimes the, the extra aids and classes and stuff are going to be the first thing to cut if, yeah. if things are tight. So I'm very excited to bring in Carol Demas founder and director of the Educational Advocacy and Consulting Group. And she, Carol, is a certified elementary teacher, a reading and learning behavior specialist, and has a master's in special education. Carol? Hello. Hi. Thank you <laughs> thank so much. You. So, thank you. So what exactly is an education advocate? So an educational advocate is someone who supports families, helps to empower them with their rights. It is someone who has typically an educational background. Many advocates have taught, uh, such as myself. I have taught in the special education settings, um, but also has a clear understanding and training and study in educational law. It doesn't mean we necessarily are attorneys. Um, There are some attorneys who also act as advocates, but we know uh, special education law have gone through training so that we can help parents with their rights and help them to kind of 
figure out a way to open that gate. We we sometimes use the analogy that for for parents, schools sometimes feel like gatekeepers and trying to keep kids out. And so if you know your rights, you can get that key to open the gate. So, Carol, I know we just described an IEP, an individual education mm-hmm. plan. Um, I'm going to ask you what that is and then also what is a 504 plan? How are they different? Sure. And I know you um, touched on this. So you are correct. Actually, there are two laws that support our uh, children with differences or challenges or disabilities. One is that IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. If a child is found eligible under IDEA, there are 14 categories. There are things like specific learning disability, autism, OHI, which is other health impaired. That might be for a child with ADD or ADHD. So there are 14 different categories. After going through testing, and if a child is determined eligible under one or sometimes two of those categories, that child results in getting an an IEP, which is a plan that has a list of accommodations for the child to access their educational environment, but also has goals that result in specialized direct instruction. Because what we need to do is we need to remediate those areas. So if a child has dyslexia, we're going to have goals on how we're going to increase their ability to decode words, read more fluently, etc. So that's kind of an IEP um, sketch. And then a 504 plan falls under the law of ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. And that is, and I believe one of you had said, Tracy, about the Access. It is about access. So what it says is that you have a health or medical concern that creates a a substantial limitation for one or more major life activities. Those things can be learning, breathing, for example, for a child with asthma, um, concentrating, sleeping, any of those. And so if that is the case, then that child has the right to have a 504 plan, which is a list of accommodations to level that playing field. Is a 504, it, would it be something health? Like what if there's like um, a severe allergy, like a food or Absolutely. health thing? Yes, diabetes, allergies. So if it, we have many children who have life-threatening allergies. So in that plan, there might be things like desks in the room. Uh, if they're used by other children who might have had for example, a peanut butter sandwich for lunch, those desks need to be wiped off before that child with allergies can use that desk, things like that. Okay. So I, I've heard through my parent circles that um, this can be a long process. Once you identify that your kid, because you, you're as a parent, you know your kid the best, um, may need yeah. supports, how long does it take to get an IEP? It, it is a long process, but it is very, there are very specific legal timelines. So I think even knowing that is comforting to parents because sometimes they think that someone can deliberately stretch things out. So as long as a parent knows that their first uh, communication needs to be in writing and simply to say, I'm concerned about my child and I want my child to have a case study evaluation, those three words, that then starts a legal timeline that says within 14 days the school has to meet with you and look at what areas of concern, what do we need to collect 
And once that is determined and the parent signs permission for that testing, they have 60 school days, not calendar days, to complete that testing, come back to the table, and then determine eligibility. So although, yes, 60 school days can be a long time, at least it's not open-ended. There is an actual legal timeline, and that's a federal law. That's in every state. Okay. So, Carol, my older daughter is in what Chicago Public Schools calls um, an options class. That means the kids all tested high enough to get in and progress at an advanced pace. But what's funny is, um, and I love these kids, but for many who excel in one area, there seems to be a deficit in another area. And um, I, I understand that's called the twice exceptional child. Is 2E or twice exceptional more complicated than other special education needs? Yes, it very much is. Um, so those 2E children uh, simply means that they are gifted and they also have a disability. And what many times what happens is that the high intellect, the giftedness, masks the disability or the disability masks the giftedness. And so this population of children can be very much underserved until such time as the struggle. For example, one common is gifted children with dyslexia. That's, that can be fairly common. So in the beginning of the early years, the child can compensate for the dyslexia and find other means to still score on the school testing within the average range. But left unchecked, eventually... Things can fall apart, and things can fall apart in many different ways, not only in their ability to read and decode, but also self-esteem, anxiety, frustration, some of those things. So it is very difficult. We've got to look at that child under both of those lenses. It's, it can be very difficult. So when would a family need to hire an advocate? Does it have to be an extreme case, or um, no. could it be like what, who, what kind of families come to you? Well, many of our families call because they're in crisis. For example, their child is struggling, perhaps school refusal, um, not going to school, and the, the school might be threatening truancy, but the family knows that there's an underlying issue and the child isn't getting support. So we do have families in crisis or children who have had to have been hospitalized due to some significant emotional needs. Then we have families who know, as you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the parent is the expert on the child. Even if you don't know the name of it or you don't know the lingo, you know there's something going on. And um, you don't know how to navigate that and or get the school to recognize it as well. So we get a lot of those kinds of families. And then we get families who already have a child with an IET, and maybe that child has had an IET since uh, early uh, childhood, but things aren't working. They're feeling like it's not enough. It's not supporting them. So they come to us and they say, you know, we need more help. Read this document. Are these goals written appropriately? Is my child getting the right services? And then uh, lastly, we do get quite a few families who believe that the public school is not the appropriate place for that child to be educated, but they know that it is their right uh, to have uh, that child placed in a private therapeutic school if 
the needs of the child dictate that they need more than the public school can offer, and they need our help in navigating that and getting the school to recognize it, agree with it, and then place that child so that that cost is not to the parents, because those schools can be very, very expensive. So you help navigate the the process to make to start the dialogue for those families and yep. those extreme cases. I gotcha. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What do you find is happening uh, for students most often in your practice? I am seeing a tremendous amount of school anxiety and school refusal, and it usually occurs because there is an undiagnosed or unrecognized uh, learning issue or perhaps uh, an emotional issue that has not been properly supported. And I'm seeing a lot of that, and we know in uh, today and in, in the news we're seeing so much more about mental health and uh, wellness and trying to support our young people who at times feel there's no way out. But we see a lot of that, and we see the first signs of that with that school anxiety or school refusal. I also, we're seeing quite a bit of dyslexia, and uh, parents are aware that the laws have changed it used to be dyslexia couldn't even be written in an IET. It was like a four-letter word, but now both federally and statewide, we recognize dyslexia as part of a specific learning disability, which is one of those 14 categories. And so families are trying to figure out, now that I know my child has it, um, how am I going to get the school to provide the right kind of intervention? So we we see quite a bit of that. And then as of the last few years, we're seeing a lot of what's called PANDAS. I don't know if you're familiar or your listeners are, but that's an acronym that stands for Pediatric Acute Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep. And I know there was um, some a national program that did some um, reporting on this as well. So there's more awareness. But this is a situation where the strep actually um, impacts the child's brain in such that they may be, end up getting OCD, kicks, anxiety, etc. And because of the awareness of this, we're seeing more children identified with this and schools aren't really equipped right now to know exactly how to support them. So we've gotten a lot more families whose children have this disorder as well. I have heard, I actually have heard of pandas. Yeah. What happens when a family and the district disagree about a plan or the next steps? What, you know, what if a family wants more than what the school is willing or able to supply? Or saying is not holding up its end of the bargain. Like that's what I hear is that parents are like, they're supposed to have X amount of hours a week of this and they're not getting it. Yeah. Well, um, so under conflict resolution, um, there are many different steps. And really as an advocate, one of our goals is to prevent having to go to due process. We really try to work hard to prevent that by trying to work with the school. So data is key. We do a very specific file review. And really so we can actually show the data that, here, look at this. 
the child's reading scores have actually declined over the last three years. So you actually have not been providing this child with a free, appropriate public education because he or she is not making progress. So we will do everything from what we call early resolution, which is just meeting with the district at the local level and, and kind of pointing all these things out and saying, this isn't working and there are some real issues here. We're willing to work with you, but we need this, this, and that. Then there's, from there, we can write a state complaint. So the Illinois State Board of Education has a complaint form that we would use to say the child's rights are being violated. For example, if the child is supposed to be provided um, extended time for test and the child was denied, we can fill out that paper. Typically what happens then, an investigation ensues, and then if the state finds that the school did not um, implement the IEP, then the school might have to provide some compensatory services as well as remediate the issue. But we can go all the way through from filing that complaint to mediation. And then finally, if it's something very significant and we're not able to do anything with those means, then we at that point might refer to various law firms that specialize in supporting children under special education. So that leads me to my next question was, um, I've heard, I've, I've known families that have had to hire lawyers to deal with the school mm-hmm. districts. What's the difference between an advocate and a lawyer beside the obvious, like you, you don't have your law degree? I think that um, the background in education, as an educational advocate, it is our responsibility to understand the learning profiles of children with various different types of learning challenges and then what that child needs, what type of instruction. So all the advocates that work in my firm have that education degree and background and license so that I know that if they pick up a a file of a child that has a particular learning disability, for example, in math, they know what that child requires in order to help remediate that, and therefore they can really be a very important contributing uh, individual to that IEP. Um, Attorneys, there are, I think, some attorneys that do have education backgrounds, which is great, but um, that expertise is in defending the law. So that's really where the big difference lies. Okay. So do you think schools are under pressure to put fewer kids in special education in the name of this mainstreaming we talked about? Is there a money or a budget thing that is going on? Well, okay, so those are two different things. So today we usually use the term inclusion because um, all children have the right to be educated with their typical peers as long as that is appropriate for that child. Um, so we want children in their home schools, in their community, educated with their typical peers. So we kind of refer to that now as inclusion. But sometimes it isn't appropriate for the child or perhaps the other children if that particular child's needs are such that they could be disruptive. Mm-hmm. But that's a different situation. So it's outside of the situation of determining eligibility under special ed, then we determine how much of this child's instruction can be in inclusion in that regular classroom with their typical peers. Um, To answer the other question about keeping kids out, it's not in the name of mainstreaming or inclusion, but we do find that there seems to be more of a 
um, philosophy from some school districts, which seems to come from the top, that uh, let's take a wait-and-see model. We kind of call it, and it sounds disparaging, but we call it the wait-to-fail model. I sit in meetings, and sometimes I actually hear individuals say, well, you know what, he's he's right on the border. Let's just wait and give it another, you know, couple of months, and then we'll see what happens. To me, that, that could be a wait-to-fail model. If we know there's an issue, let's get in there, let's remediate before it gets worse. Yeah, it's kicking so I, the can down the road. Exactly. So I really do think in many instances there is this underlying keep kids out, but I don't want to say that somebody deliberately is doing that because that would be a violation of the law, but it's feels that way to families. I agree. I think that a lot of times, I mean, I've I've helped in a classroom before and there's a reason why I'm not a teacher and that's because I would never survive. <laughs> and I I have the utmost respect for teachers. I Absolutely. think they're the finest human beings on the planet that can I couldn't agree more. take care of the kids and and get them to be successful, but um, yeah. you know, if somebody needs so many hours of extra reading or or writing or math help or whatever it is like that's still an extra body You're, you still are in charge of the other 28 kids in the class <laughs> so so it's 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 hard yeah it's a hard it juggling hard, act. but you know the school has to provide that i mean one thing a school can't say because it would be a violation of the laws they can't say if you determine the needs of the child and say well this child's going to need 90 minutes a week of instruction and reading and then when you get to the um, the end of the IP is how we're going to implement it. And somebody says, well, sorry, we don't have anyone. Well, they're not allowed to say that. And there may be times when they say, well, okay, you have to give us a few weeks. We have to hire another individual to help provide this. That's fine. We're happy to do that. But the child's needs dictate um, the programming, the personnel, etc. And that's important. That's why there's an actual very clear level of how you do an IEP and you start with the needs of the child and the goals and this and and at the end then the minutes and then it's up to the school to implement that we don't start with well let's see who we have and how many minutes we can give the child yeah so that's important so I mentioned earlier the little boy who was in my daughter's kindergarten class and had his own aide, and he eventually mm-hmm. transferred to public school because he couldn't get what he needed. But I think that's changing. How can Catholic or other private schools get the same resources? Yes, that has changed. Years ago, if a parent privately placed a child uh, in, in a uh, private or parochial school, they were kind of on their own as far as getting services. Now, the uh, law idea still protects children who are privately placed by their parents, um, and they get what's called an ISP, an Individualized Service Plan. And it comes from the district in which that private school resides. So if your child goes to a private school in a particular town or neighborhood and whatever school district that private school is in, they are responsible to write this, uh, determine the eligibility of the child, just as if he was in their own school, write a plan, but their implementation is limited. And so the private schools get some funding from the state under IDEA, and they call it proportional share. So, for example, if a child in a parochial school needs speech therapy, and that parochial school does not have a speech therapist, the public school then would probably use that funding to provide some minutes and provide that speech therapist to that child. So, yes, they do have rights 
under even children who are homeschooled, that's still considered privately placed. So it's very important to to know that because a lot of times families don't realize that. Yeah, I did not know. Thanks. So yes. um, you have given workshops and you mentioned that there are important pieces of, of information to effectively advocate for your kids. Like, So if somebody hasn't hired an advocate yet, what, mm-hmm. what is a takeaway or what is something you would want to impart to a parent who might be just in the beginning stages going, you know, I think something's going on. I think, I think well, we need to yeah. address something here. Definitely. So one of the best resources out there for families is called Rights Law, W-R-I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W. Rights Law is uh, formed by Pete and Pam Wright, who are kind of the um, parents of advocacy. And they hold um, trainings and workshops and et cetera, but they have many books. And there's a website, rightslaw.com. So a family can go to that website, type in any topic, autism, dyslexia, um, you know, difficulty getting my school district to provide this, whatever it is, and they can find um, information, legislation to help them defend their stance with the school district. It can be a wonderful tool for parents. So that would be one of the first things. But also, um, there are organizations, I mean, our organization, we provide free 60-minute consult to any family that wants to come in. But there are also Equip for Equality is a legal firm that will support families uh, free of charge if they need help. Um, so there are books on advocacy and um, information, but I would say my first go-to um, would be Rights Law. Perfect. That's a good, I wrote that one down. Good. <laughs> So there, there's so much involved with this, but this kind of broke it down at least um, to talk about what the IEP and 504 is and, and that there, there's options out there for families and that if you're hitting a brick wall and or hitting your head against the wall, like something I'm not getting, I'm, it's not computing, the district isn't understanding or there's something wrong, that there's options out there and resources available. I think that would that that helps knowing that there's people out there that can help because as a parent when you're going through it and if it's your first time, it can be very frustrating and daunting actually. Absolutely. And and, and the blogs and the parent groups online, the the Facebook groups um are wonderful, wonderful options as well just to be able to talk with other families and share experiences. We've heard some of that from our listeners already, and um, I expect that this episode is going to um, get more. So um, thank you so much for joining us, Carol. Carol Demas, founder and director of Educational Advocacy and Consulting. Uh, Your website is educationaladvocacyandconsulting.com, correct? Correct. Correct. Thank, thank you so much for your input today. I really appreciate it. And Thank um, you. I was happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me. So apparently there are a lot of options and resources available to parents, you know, when, when you're having your kid come home and you're, you're, you're not seeing the growth or you're seeing problems in reading and so on. Dyslexia, when she said dyslexia, that really... I, it's a huge problem. I just want to also point out to everybody that when you typed up your notes for this episode, you said you listed processing disorders, anxiety, and dyslexia. <laughs> I spelled it wrong. You spelled it wrong. Nice. So, <laughs> so, yeah. I, 
I'm not a great speller. Spell checked in, fix it. And we're not making fun of dyslexia. No. I'm just making fun of you. Yes, that's fine. You can make fun of me. <laughs> so, well, we'd love to continue the conversation and hear from you. So check out our Facebook page at Apparently. You can give us a call at our new number, 331-704-0046. Or email us at ApparentlyPodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnsos. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look.